God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for being here this morning, for giving us this opportunity to freely study your word and get to know you even better. I thank you, God, for what Lily is going to share with us this morning. I thank you for how you've spoken to her this week. I thank you for uh, her allowing herself to be used as a vessel of your word and your teaching. I pray, God, that as that all of our hearts would be softened to the message, the unique message that you have for each one of us this morning. And I pray that as we go into our small groups, that we will take all that we have learned and that we will even know you better. Um, please be with Lily as she speaks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Daniela. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Let me add my my Happy New Year to you. Uh, did everyone have a great Christmas vacation? A whole month we had off, right? I sure had a great one. It was so busy, though. I have been uh, to Hawaii, and I've been to St. Louis for a wedding, and I've been to Wyoming to visit my grandkids. <laughs> Woo, that was a busy month. But I tell you what, Hawaii was a couple weeks before Christmas, and boy, that was so lovely. We left, I think, the day after the, the Christmas brunch here, and it was so relaxing. And one of the things I did there is I sat out on the lanai, you know, that's what they call the outdoor patio, and I Christmas shopped online <laughs> in entirety, my whole Christmas shopping for the first time ever, I did it online. That was such a relaxing way to shop. <laughs> I told my husband, I think I might have to do that every year. Of course, with the hotel costs and uh, the airfare, that would be some pretty uh, expensive Christmas shopping every year. So I'm not sure that's going to happen. But it was wonderful. Well, most of us have been on a journey, haven't we? Traveling together of Acts. Um, not all the way through yet, it, because this is a journey that will continue all the way Lord willing, through May. But for anyone who's new today, and we, we welcome you here, we're glad you're here, um, and also for all of us, really, that we've been on a one-month-long break, and we tend to forget a few things, don't we? And so I am going to give us a review of where we have been. Acts, we know, was written by Luke, who was one of Jesus' disciples, though not one of the original twelve. He was a doctor and he was a very uh, astute historian who we know also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And in his Gospel, Luke had written about Jesus' life on earth, all the things that he did, uh, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension back into heaven. But the story didn't end there at the end of the Gospel of Luke because Jesus told his followers right before he was taken up into heaven, this is what was written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. That had already happened when Jesus said those words. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And he's talking to his followers and he says, you are witnesses of these things. And I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city, and that would be Jerusalem, until you have been clothed with power from on high. And so 
The book of Acts is a continuation of Luke's gospel in a sense because Acts is the story of that exact thing happening of the repentance and the forgiveness of sins being preached. So so Acts is the record of this new Christian movement that began with Jesus Christ, God's son coming to earth. And one very cool truth is that the story of this Christian movement in Acts has not yet ended as I stand here in January of the new year of 2016. And the story will go on until Jesus comes again as promised. And my hope as we study Acts is that more and more we will believe and we will discover that Jesus wants us to be part of his unfolding plan. And thus the title, The Ripple Effect. So here's a synopsis of what's happened so far in the book of Acts. I'm going to try to make this quick. Acts chapter 1. It's a very important window for us or a foundation because in that chapter, it'd be a good one to go back and review if you've forgotten. In that chapter, we see exactly what the first followers of Jesus believed. These were our eyewitnesses. And so because we see what they believe and because we see how it affected their lives, this naturally then became the foundation of Christian belief through the ages. And as I said, all the way to today and then beyond. Then Acts chapter two, we learned of a very key happening in the lives of the early believers on the day of Pentecost. And because of this, That happening, we know what it takes to be transformed. We know what it takes to become an effective Christian and really live for Jesus. And what is that? Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God actually comes and dwells inside believers. So Acts chapter 2 is a big deal because it's a huge turning point for the early church and for us. And it was, again, the fulfillment of Jesus' promise before he went back to heaven of this power on high. In that, on that day of Pentecost, the wind of God's spirit came rushing in and Jesus' followers were filled with incredible joy, a new sense of God's presence and the power, power. And they knew that all those things were not just for them, but they were an offer for everyone. And they go out to share this offer with everyone. And that brings us in our review to chapters three and four, where the emphasis was on the power of Jesus' name. The name Jesus, we found out, carries with it authority, reputation, and power. And we saw, if you remember... In uh, chapter 3, Peter healing a lame beggar on the way to the temple, and he said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Get up and walk. And the guy gets up and he walks. And all the people come running to see this miracle. And Peter seizes the opportunity to give praise and testimony about Jesus being the long-predicted Messiah. Well, this gets Peter and his buddy, another disciple, John, arrested. But the number of believers now has grown from 120 at the beginning of Acts to 3,000 at the day of Pentecost to now 5,000. And the authorities question Peter and John, and the main thing that they want to know, again, 
By what power, by what name did you do this? Acts 4, 7. And Peter answers, salvation's found in no one else. There is no other name given uh, under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. Powerful statement, powerful testimony. Acts chapter 5, however, we see that as Jesus and the Spirit is alive and working in the people, so is our enemy, Satan. We see Satan tries to silence the witness of this new fellowship of believers, and he tries to do it from within through the story of Ananias and Sapphira. This husband and wife, you may recall, plotted together to tell a lie. And we know from Acts 5.3 that this lie was energized, or, or this idea to do this was energized by Satan. And the purpose, we can assume, was to divide, to disgrace the new church. But instead, the Lord strikes this couple dead. A powerful statement. And the group of Christ followers instead of being divided, is now unified even more. And we read that it it multiplies from there. But then more persecution breaks out and the apostles are arrested. There's a great jail by an angel. You might want to go back and read that if you weren't here that day. And they go right back after the jail bust and they go right back to teaching out in the open. Acts chapter 6 and 7 center on Stephen his ministry, and his martyrdom. We know that Stephen had quite the servant heart. We know he was a wise teacher. He was a defender of the faith who also did great wonders and miraculous signs. In chapter 7, Stephen is speaking to the Jews and he reviews the whole history of Israel and really brings out a pattern of sinfulness in the nation of Israel. And well, that speech gets Stephen killed. But in the process, Stephen saw the glory of God opening up to him and he, as he became the first Christian martyr. And then Acts chapter 8, we learned that the church was then, after the murder of Stephen, scattered all throughout Judea and Samaria. And again, the ripple effects of lives being touched was happening with this scattering because the believers preached the word wherever they went. And we saw specific instances of this with Simon the sorcerer and the Ethiopian eunuch. All that was our fall here at Spice. Which lands us now at Acts chapter 9, our passage of today, and Saul comes back into focus. We had left him, you may remember, in chapter 8. He was a fierce opponent of Jesus and his followers. He was standing there giving approval to Stephen's murder by stoning. And he has not changed his stance of hatred and hostility, but rather it was as if something has now snapped in his head As we come to chapter 9, for at this point, Saul begins his fiercest attempts to destroy the new Christian church. Saul became relentless, we find out. He even traveled throughout Judea and Samaria and northern Israel. And then he even goes across the border into Syria to to the capital city of Damascus, which was 140 miles from Jerusalem. This was a six or seven day journey by foot. 
We know there was a lot of Jews living there in that day, perhaps to escape some persecution of Christian Jews. But Saul traveled there with the purpose of hunting down these Jewish people who had become Jesus followers and bringing them back to Jerusalem bound, tied up. Saul is such a predator at this point. And the Christians are his prey. Why? What in the world was going on in Saul's head to make him act this way? After all, you perhaps remember that we learned some stuff about Saul. We learned that he was a very religious man. We know that he was trained by Gamaliel. Gail taught us that. Gamaliel, who was considered the teacher's teacher of that day. Saul knew the scriptures. He was respected. Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish Supreme Court. He was refined in a sense. Remember at the stoning of Stephen, he stood there giving consent to Stephen's death by stoning, but he didn't pick up a rock himself. Some kind of refinement, huh? But now, doesn't it just seem as something has just snapped in his head? And you know, we actually know that it had snapped in his head because much later he mentions himself in Acts 26, 11, that he had an obsession against the followers of the way. An obsession. Why? Why did this religious, refined, respected man become obsessed and relentless in his pursuit of those who follow Jesus. Let's just try for a minute to get into Saul's mind. Was he perhaps fighting the conviction that he was feeling that perhaps his, his long-held beliefs were wrong? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever not wanted to see the truth about a situation because you'd taken such a hard stance and, and your pride and ego, boy, that would hit, take quite a blow, you know, if you changed your course now? Or was it something about Stephen? Something about Stephen that just lingered in Saul's head and he just couldn't get it out of there? After all, how could a good man I mean, a bad, how could a bad man, if Stephen was so bad, how could he die the way Stephen died? Just to remind us all, Steve, Saul had seen Stephen's face glow, like the face of an angel. And he heard Stephen's words, some of his very last words. Look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. That had to be quite unexpected for Saul. He had wanted to punish Stephen. He hadn't expected to see his face glow, right? And so was witnessing the reality of Stephen's faith. Is that what shook Paul up so much and made him more like a crazed reactionary? Well, we can only guess at these things, but here's something that we do know. And this excited me no end when I discovered it. I can't wait to share it with you. Even as Saul's anger sparked, even as, as his rage just seemed to kind of rise to a crescendo, something else was happening inside Saul as he watched the stoning of Stephen. And do you know what it was? He was really listening to Stephen. Stephen's last sermon 
He was really listening. How do I know that? I know it because of our memory verse. Years later, in Acts chapter 17, Saul, our memory verse, in our memory verse, makes a very uncanny reference to the very message that Stephen preached just moments, moments before he was executed. Let me show you. Here's one of the things Stephen said. He'd said in his speech to the Sanhedrin right before he was stoned, he said this, the most high does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Now, let's say our memory verse again and compare Stephen's word with our memory verse for the part two of the ripple effect study. Say it with me. It's a good practice. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Let's say the reference, Acts 17, 24, 25. Do you see the similarity? What a similarity between Stephen's last words in our memory verse. And our memory verse, of course, was written by, actually spoken in a, in a speech by Saul, by Saul later after he goes through a rather unexplained name change, which we'll see in chapter 13, and becomes more known as the Apostle Paul. Saul had been so sure he had been so sure that he knew what God was all about. And he militantly stood his ground, giving his blessing on putting Stephen to death. And yet he really had listened to Stephen's last sermon. And he remembered. We just never know, do we? We never know the effect of our words and our lives. Although people might seem to be turning a deaf ear to what we're saying, the word of God does not return void, according to Isaiah 55, 11. Do you know anyone? Do you know anyone who, who at, seems absolutely hardened to the good news of Jesus? Perhaps it's even you. Perhaps you find yourself here this morning, you don't know how you got here or why you're here. And yet perhaps you're glued to the story as you heard it read. Maybe it's someone you work with that's closed off to Jesus. Maybe it is someone you live with. Maybe like me, you're married to someone who's closed off. Well, let's all be encouraged. The Lord has his ways, doesn't he? Of breaking through all preconceived notions, our biases, our thick-headedness, and bringing us home to his loving arms. The story of Saul tells us that, doesn't it? Look what he did with Saul. Doesn't this story show us that no one, no one, this guy was murdering people. No one is irredeemable. Isn't there always room at the foot of the cross for one more?
And if the story of Saul's conversion tells us that God can save any person, can he also not save any marriage, any broken relationship whatsoever, any, any hopeless, impossible situation? I know I'm taking great encouragement from this story for 2015 was not a good year for my family. Um, Last fall, we actually discovered why things had gotten so crazy and so awful. My hubby and I found out that someone we love very much has gone so very wayward and is hopelessly, seemingly hopeless, addicted to methamphetamine. You know, from a worldly perspective, this situation to us seems very hopeless and very impossible. In fact, the statistics are terrible. Only 16 to 20% of, of meth addicts recover permanently. That doesn't sound very good. But I tell you what, Acts chapter 9 has spoken to me so much already. If Saul wasn't too hardened for God to reach, then nothing is too hard for God. Nothing. Jeremiah 32, 27 says exactly that. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? No one is too far gone to see the light as Saul did. There's always room for one more at the foot of the cross. Praise God. Well, did you find it amazing and encouraging and wonderful to see the transformation of Saul's attitudes and character. The three days of blindness, boy, that was just the perfect time, wasn't it, where the only direction that Saul could see was inside himself. And apparently he didn't like what he saw very much. To use his own words, he called himself the worst of sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 and I love us now to ponder some scriptures that were later written by Saul after he came, became more known as Paul that show us some of the things that he came to realize. And I like to imagine that it was perhaps even of the, it, during those three days of blindness, namely what he came to realize we see from all his writings is the huge difference between religion and relationship. Religion versus relationship. Because Paul was religious, wasn't he? Saul, when he was still persecuting Christians. A person who has religion, you see, believes that God conditionally accepts you on the basis of your performance of certain rules and regulations. And boy, did Saul have that. Saul had religion, and apparently he really felt like he had bragging rights in that department. In fact, in in Philippians 3, 4, and 6, he wrote this. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, Flawless, he says. This is about himself. Legalistic righteousness is a very good definition, isn't it, of religion. Legalistic righteousness. During those three days, though, when he was physically blind, Paul recognized what he couldn't see before. 
Saul came to understand that favor with God was not about religion. It wasn't about legalistic righteousness, but it was about relationship. Relationship in particular with Jesus. A definition of relationship is the knowledge that God unconditionally accepts you on the basis of your belief in Jesus. And what a difference that makes. Here's what Saul later wrote in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And, and oh, I just got the biggest kick uh, in Hawaii, in fact, of reading because I've been studying the conversion of Saul, I suddenly wanted to read every letter that he wrote. And, and, and I was hearing these verses that I've heard for a long time with a new tone in them as a, as a newly converted Saul. And, um, and so Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, I heard it more like this. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one, including me, can boast. That's how I heard it. I heard it anew. And, and Romans 8.15 also gives a glimpse of the change in Saul's understanding. He said, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Crying, Abba, Father has the connotation of of a very intimate relationship with God, a close, a personal relationship through his son, Jesus Christ. And what Saul grasped is that our relationship with God is not dependent on following rules and perfect behavior, but it is dependent on a loving bond with a perfect Savior. Let me say that again. Our relationship with God is not dependent on following rules and perfect behavior, but on a loving bond with a perfect Savior. Amen. And you know what? That switch of thinking changes everything. Everything. Saul later put it this way. He said, I consider everything a loss. And he's talking about all that list of his credentials that he, that he rattled off earlier. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider those things rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Could he be more clear? He has got it down. Now, through Jesus and his cross, Saul has been reconciled to God, and he could approach him like a little son who would talk trustingly to his daddy. That's what Abba means, daddy. It's a very personal, familial term for God. Saul could talk to him like a daddy. And speaking of that, our passage tells us that Saul was in prayer those three blind days. In prayer. And I love to guess the contents of Saul's conversations with God during those three days. Imagine with me, what was Saul praying? That's a lot of solid time to pray. What was Saul praying? 
well, one rather obvious idea is, did he ask for forgiveness, right? Especially for his persecution, his self-righteousness, and then his persecution of Jesus via his followers. Perhaps did he ask for understanding to, to know what, I know I'd ask, what do you want me to do now, God? And from Acts 26, we know that Jesus told Saul on the road to Damascus, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. We may not realize what a big deal that is, but he said, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And so this is how I imagine on day, about day three of blindness. Um, Daddy, Abba, now that we're so close, could you clarify something for me? What in the world do you mean you're sending me to the Gentiles? There in your plan too? (laughs) Can't you imagine it? I bet he had a lot of questions like that. Here's one more idea. Perhaps during those three days, Saul worshipped God with all his heart for the first time ever. First time. Think about it. He, he, we're quite certain that he went to synagogue every Sabbath, right? But did he really, truly worship? I know when I'm, that I'm not really prone to worship God when I think that I'm earning my own way to heaven on my good behavior and my religious achievements, right? Then I'm, I'm looking at myself. I'm kind of patting myself on the back. I'm, I'm really worshiping my own strength. I'm rewarding myself or congratulating myself for my own self-discipline. Yikes. And to that, I just imagine God kind of clears his throat and he says, my goodness, Lily. It's my goodness, Lily, not your goodness. It's my goodness that draws you into relationship with me. Well, isn't it fun to just kind of let your imagination go wild and, and, and imagine what Saul spent his three blind days doing. We do know, though, don't we, the end result was that the very same mouth which had been breathing out murderous threats against Jesus' followers was now singing out praises and calling God Abba, Daddy. What a change. And like I said, as I've been studying this dramatic conversion, I just developed this new fascination with all his letters um, and after he was changed from a Christian hater, basically, to a Jesus lover. Um, and a lot of the bits and the pieces from his letters, some of the things I read were Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, really three-quarters of the New Testament is writ- written by this, this Saul. Um, so many bits and pieces can be found in his letters that, that really read like his autobiography. And I had fun just picking out nuggets and finding them. And we can really see what he was thinking and what he was um, feeling about even pro- perhaps in his process of being converted. For example, he tells Timothy later, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. Love that. Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. 
Here's a trustworthy saying, he tells Timothy, that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And then look what he tells him next. This, this I'd never uh, focused on this before. He says, for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example. To who? As an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. That's us. Who have, who have believed in him and received eternal life. So Saul in these verses uses his own dramatic change as an example for us of how conversion happens and what it looks like. Saul is our case study, you could say. He's our case study. So from these verses, what won the, the heart of Saul forever? What was it? I put him in, I put him in bold. It was God's mercy, wasn't it? It was God's grace. It was his unlimited patience. That's what won Saul's heart forever. And I looked at that and I thought, wow. He's my case study. I should receive those things in abundance for myself on a daily basis. What about you? Do you think you should receive those things for yourself? And what about when we're reaching out to a fellow sinner? Isn't that what we're to offer them as well? I mean, Saul really found out what the, uh, the truth of what James said. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy over judgment. And perhaps like me as a child, you were brought up with legalism, you know, where it's up to us to kind of do good behavior and religious activities and kind of like hand them up to God instead of God reaching down to us in his mercy and in his grace and in his unlimited patience, drawing us to himself. And if that was your background too, when you thought about God, you probably, like I did, felt more judgment than mercy. I know I expected the rod of judgment when I failed. And after I would summon up enough courage to approach God with my sin, I did, it's still cringing in fear. And then I even carried with me for years a, sh a sense of shame that, that really formed a partition between me and God. And reading all through these letters of Saul. I saw that there is really no need for shame. There is really no need for a partition between me and God. There's no need for fear. And oh, I just want to bring that message to you today too. Saul is our case study. And from his story, can we not see that even in our worst, even in our ugliest moments of failure, Abba Father is reaching down to us and just wanting to lavish us with mercy and grace and instill in us the gift of faith and his love.
What about you? Were you, were you taught the rights and wrongs about living and very little about the heart of God? Let's think anew today. How have God's mercy and grace been displayed in your life? And how might you demonstrate his mercy and grace to others? Pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this beautiful example of what you can do with a life that is so dead set against you. I take great hope in it, Lord, for my loved ones. And I pray that the women here would also. Fill us now, Lord, with your spirit as we discuss around our tables. Thank you so much for your gifts of mercy and grace and unlimited patience. Amen.